Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. It's another mailbag episode. I'm your host, Richard Reddy, but my friends call me Spanners. So, let's be friends. Hello from a little blue shed. In the depths of Bedfordshire, England. Yes, it is a real shed. We're moving soon, so the shed will be no more. So I must make sure to do a little tour of the shed because the podcasting shed is about to become a nice little painting studio for the lady that's buying our house. But no time for that now. Today we have another chance to answer your questions. Thank you very much. We do build these up. The way to get your questions submitted to us is feedback at mistapex.net. But none of this changes that we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. Today I'm joined from America land by Matt Two Rumpets. Almost done with my Carlos Sainz strategy calculations. And there is a Carlos Sainz strategy question and some tyre questions. I do get insulted, Matt. People say, here's a tyre question, probably for Matt, when I'm I'm the most interested tyre person on the whole panel. Well, you know so much about them. I mean, it has become a a feature of your reporting on Formula One to be an expert on the tyres. So we were podcasting when... Pirelli first came into Formula One. Can you remember the year? Oh, um, it was it 2012? Was it 2012? I think we're going to go for 2012, although our next panelist may well know. But I remember us talking about the change and you quickly realized, I think, before any of us, that the tyre strategy was was going to become key. And, and you yeah. were really pushing very early on to talk about the tyres. And I was like, oh, no, man, are we going to talk about tyres again? But but before that, tyres were not a dominant factor in in how you would discuss the race. Yes, we knew Schumacher had specially bespoke Bridgestones and then loads of other people had Michelins, but it it wasn't fundamental to the sport in the way it is now. 
No, I mean, but the thing is, tires are always fundamental to the sport. But especially if you go back yeah. to when we had tire wars, because they were proprietary and because testing was involved, there was a lot less known about them from our side of the fence. So the Bridgestone-Michelin battle was sort of comparable to the Mercedes versus Ferrari versus Renault engine battle of, say, 2014. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, it made it very hard to tease out what was an issue um, because the tires were being essentially uh, they were bespoke tires for the teams that could afford to spend to have them developed for yeah. them, which is, you know, a thing that Ferrari was often uh, accused of having an advantage with frequently yeah. when they weren't racing at Indianapolis. I believe. Correctly accused of having an advantage with, in my opinion, allegedly. There we go. Lawyers satisfied. But uh, we, instead of us scrambling around trying to remember dates, let's bring on someone who I suspect has an eidetic memory. It is Chris Stevens. Hello, Chris. What year was it? It was 2011. 2011. You so you, you were holding up two fingers to try and help me, help me yeah. out. And I thought that it was, was, it was indicating a two. So are you no. 2012? But yeah, so it's 2011 that Pirelli came in. And, and they didn't come in really with the best of, of reputations. I think they got given a brief. They followed the brief. The tyres were falling apart. And I, I really do wonder if their sales suffered because why would you want to buy tyres from a company whose, whose race tyres just fall apart and are chocolate tyres? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, they were asked to bring high-deg tyres and then people said, well, what does that say about their road tyres? Of course, it doesn't say anything at all. If they're making tyres that can withstand the pressures of a Formula 1 car, then you can pretty much you know, rest easy on their road tyres being substantial enough for you. <laughs> yeah, it's like there's never been an issue that they couldn't make those tyres those last. Yeah. They, of course they can if they wanted to. Yeah, of course. Mm. I mean, I, I would still argue that uh, Michelin is probably the best global manufacturer of tyres and that's why they have like the most motorsport contracts. Um, and uh, you would have people like Goodyear, Bridgestone and uh, Pirelli in the in the in the mix there as well okay well speaking of contracts i've got a question to ask you chris are you ready yeah. for my question yeah yeah go ahead i chris, love questions so next weekend is the hungarian grand prix and as you know here at miss apex we do a race review show on a sunday ready for your monday morning commute chris i've heard about this yeah chris stevens would you please come and join our panel for that race review I'm afraid I can't, Spanners. Why? This is outrageous. How dare you? What possible reason could you have for not joining our race review, Chris? Well, you see, there's this other motor racing event um, on. It's called the London E-Prix. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have heard of uh, Formula or anything uh, like that, but um, I'm going to be there commentating on it. Never heard of it. Com you're <laughs> going to be doing the trackside commentary for the London E-Prix. Chris, yeah. you have been a fantastic commentator for the Missed Apex iRacing series, and it is amazing to see you get this this recognition. Uh, it's not on any of the, the global feeds, but the people no. in the ground, in the stadium, will hear your commentary. That is, a, that is a massive gig in all motorsport. It's a massive gig, actually. I know the person that does it in Formula One as well. A, a huge congratulations. I think this is nice. a stepping stone on you being recognised for your ability to call a race and bring it to life. Thanks, man. And I, 
I don't know. I felt felt a bit cocky saying it like that, but honestly, since since I got the news, I've been wondering around, going, "How how has this happened?" But, yeah. And and Matt tried to get me all teary eyed right before we started the broadcast as well by telling me how proud he and Mrs. Trumpets are, yeah. which was a horrible <laughs> maneuver to go for. But yeah, no, th- thanks guys, and thanks everyone what? who's tweeted me and sent me a message. And yeah, it's just uh, well, Matt. Of course, happy. we're proud of him. We had him on here as a seventeen-year-old. Dweeb, we've put the work right in behind the ears, yeah. knowing nothing, couldn't yeah. even find the corner where he was supposed to meet me when he came to New York. And now look <laughs> at him. Couldn't even uh, have the mic facing the right direction or plug the right thing into the right desk. Um, but of course, we feel a little bit of ownership from you, Chris, having had you on the show uh, since you were a teenager. But if you want to oh. hear Chris in action, go and check out Miss Apex Motorsport channel on YouTube and you can see how you bring a, a race to life. Of course, stadium announcing, Chris, it's um, it's a little bit of a different beast. You will have to spend a significant amount of time, you know, like, you know it, will the person parked in the disabled space with the, with the BMW that's on fire, please come and, 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 and move their car? Yeah, exactly. Please move it or it will be moved for you is the classic line <laughs> no of course it's very exciting and you get to do a lot of top interviews as well within the the e-village uh yeah yeah the, i think uh most of my stuff is going to be on the the track side uh commentary um we'll see when i get there uh what else would they they want me to do but it, it sounds like a really exciting package that we've um put together and and i i, I cannot thank uh you know loudspeaker and my agent uh, Gemma enough for helping with the opportunity. Well, it's not an Oscar speech. Don't sit here <laughs> thanking your agent. My goodness. This is the listener feedback episode of Missed Apex Podcast. So when I look around my panel to see who can pick the first question out of my mailbag, I'm going to look around to see who's got the the best gigs coming up. Matt, are you doing trackside commentary for any major motorsport events? No, but I did do a chamber music concert at Lake George last Friday. No one cares about music. Chris, you get the honor of picking the first listener question. Okay, great. Well, this one comes in from uh, Robert Fleming, um, who, on a recent rewatch of the movie Rush, Ron Howard's classic uh, docudrama of the 1976 World Championship battle between James Hunt and Nicky Lauda, one of the best motor racing films ever made um courts a, a bit of commentary um in that during the uh the japanese grand prix section uh of that where they talk about jody Schechter in the six-wheeled tyrell yeah and he goes did i hear that correctly <laughs> there was a six-wheeled f1 car Yes, there was. It is a very bizarre idea to the point where apparently Jackie Stewart choked on his drink when he was told <laughs> about the idea. Um, but it is honestly one of the most famous quirky designs ever produced in Formula One. Well, now this, I mean, this, Matt, if we were having tech chat back in the 70s and 80s and 90s, it would be a very different tech chat to what we're having now. Uh, we We talk about we have talked about, you know, the, the soul of the sport. Should it be a spec series? Which bit should be different? Yeah. But really, if you compare modern F1 to those times, modern F1 is a spec series. <laughs> yeah. I mean, imagine a rule set where the number of wheels isn't something that they bother to specify. Spanners, it's interesting you mention spec series Ooh, because okay. the design came about because pretty much everyone except for Ferrari at this point in time, was using the same engine, the same gearbox, and the same tyres. 
So where do you find your competitive advantage? And that is where Derek Gardner came up with the idea to put two uh, or four very small front wheels on the car to basically improve the front end grip. And they even convinced Goodyear to produce these special 10-inch tires solely for their car and to keep it very much under lock and key it was kept a secret from even the drivers Uh, okay so i mean if you remember matt you know we were speaking to matthew carter who by the way we couldn't get a show with this week but is very keen to come and speak to us soon when he was talking about his days as team principal at lotus i think it was the 2014 season where there was a lot of interesting nose geometry and if people want to look it up 2014 lotus f1 car it had an asymmetric twin tusk nose so one tusk was longer than the other, and that was to try and sort of circumvent the rules, saying you know the the nose had to be a certain height, a certain length, it had to exist in a certain zone. Well, they went, ah, oh, okay. Well, in that case, we can have one nose doing one thing and one nose d- doing another. I'll tell you what else they had as well. In 2011, was a front-facing exhaust. Oh. It came out like pretty much where the front of the side pods were, rather than you know traditionally coming out the back. The idea was it was going to channel more air through more of the uh, car. Yeah. It didn't quite work out. Oh, uh, no, but that was after Red Bull. Oh, no, after Braun, actually. Yeah. First, well, was that the first time that we heard about the exhaust fumes being used to help with downforce? So in 2008, they had a rear blown diffuser. They Nine, used the ex- yeah. yeah. Oh, 2009, yes. They used the rear diffuser, uh, the, the exhaust fumes to blow onto a certain part of the rear aerodynamics to create more downforce. Yeah, so 2009 was like the double diffuser, and then 2011 was really when the exhaust gases like came into it as well, where they were able to keep the exhaust gases flowing even when the driver wasn't on the throttle. Ah, and that would help with the aero. That's why it made that sort of spitting noise as well, that under braking. And it was a very, yeah... A very like great idea that I'm sad we still don't have in so Formula was One. Was that the exhaust fumes making that noise? Because oh, I suppose as you're braking, hang on, oh, hang on, I'm having this. So is when like, you're braking, oh, no, 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 please let me guess to see if I can. Because okay. I know you, I know you know. Let me see if I can uh, tease it out. So you're braking and slowing down, and therefore not using, uh, uh, using the gas to keep going. Yet you are trying to keep the exhaust up. So do you end up with like petrol? in the exhaust that's unused does that create the pop uh i don't know if it's petrol in the exhaust maybe uh matt or or, or summer's a bit is a better person matt, okay. class, but it was, well, it was about like matt. keeping the throttle sort of like five yes. percent open okay but wouldn't that then generate like petrol fumes in the exhaust that would lead to a pop sound maybe matt? i think it would matt oh. In general, when you have backfires, it's because you have unburned petroleum in your exhaust. Now and when it hits the hot exhaust, it goes bang, which ah. is what petroleum likes to do at high temperature. Yeah, that's what it's designed to do. So in 2011, Lotus were trying to then use the the exhaust, doing this thing where you're having constant exhaust fumes, but using it to create some kind of aero effect. Yeah, so pretty much everyone was, was doing it, but Lotus's exhaust came out of the front which was uh-huh. uh, very, um, very bizarre. It didn't quite have the intended um, effect. But this, this Tyrrell, it was so utterly groundbreaking. And it was actually incredibly competitive. It, it came about in the, the fourth round of that 
season yeah. and was very, very quick straight out the the blocks. And it even got pole and led a 1-2 at the Swedish Grand Prix and only its fourth race. But, but the, the problem with it was it was not very good on the brakes. It, it uh. wore through them quite quickly. And if you you know, we're on a bumpy circuit in particular, it would be incredibly difficult to break. So the reason I mentioned the Lotus was you come up with something that different, like the twin tusks or like McLaren mm. with their, their rear wings. That was almost like a rib cage. That was like brakes. It's either genius or, or there's a reason that no one yeah. else thought about it. Um, yep. So yeah, in all those cases, there's a reason no one else thought about it. Yeah. It's, it's like when uh, Nissan tried to do a front wheel drive Le Mans car in 2015. Yeah. I think there's a reason why all racing cars have rear wheel drive. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. I think it's a, just a proven concept. Um, but what, what killed off this car, unfortunately, um, aside from the sort of braking issues, it was, you could sort of cope with it. Um, but what really killed it off was the fact that Goodyear didn't develop tires for it because they were bespoke and unique to that car. So everyone else's tires got developed all through the 76 season and through 77 as well. Wow. And um, and uh, Tyrrell's dedicated tires were not. And then eventually, six-wheel cars were banned in the early 80s. <laughs> okay. Well, they look stupid, but I had... And look, it does look a little bit odd, doesn't it? <laughs> only, only a few people will understand this, but my first proper bike, well, after passing my proper bike test... That's right. I know I, know I, I, know I slate motorbike racing... Because it is witchcraft, <laughs> but I was I was a biker when I was uh, younger. Was a, a Honda V Twin two fifty, and the unique thing about this thing, apart from sounding like a tractor and only going about eighty miles an hour, uh, was that the front wheel was only like fourteen inches, and the rear wheel was like a normal size, and it it just was horrible for for handling. So like a small front wheel, just it was just so unforgiving. You could you you had to use your body weight. There was no way you could like at slow speed turn the handlebars and you just you just fall down as motorbikes should when they lean over moto gp with your witchcraft um, but if you look at these front wheels as well i suppose they are rotating quicker than the other wheels so surely they'll wear more because you know that that bit of tire is getting back to the track that much sooner and having two sets of one of front wheels they're not sharing that burden they're still going to wear quicker so i i'm interested to get matt's take on whether you think that if we had a six-wheeled f1 car now if haas could turn up with a six-wheeled f1 car with that i don't understand what could help well the the big help uh is you just add the two contact patches together so instead of a 13 inch contact patch you have two 10 inch contact patches which is roughly the equivalent of one you'd get on a 20 inch wheel so you had so much more bite at the front of the car um, that it possessed an advantage, and you have lower rolling resistance with smaller wheels. But, okay. And, but what what yeah. about what about um, what about like friction because and differential? So if you've got four wheels turning, how do you make sure that they're not kind of fouling each other? Because they all must be wanting to turn at, at different speeds, or is that just passive? I guess it would be um, passive, maybe. I don't know if they ran a front differential that year but uh i assume that it, it would would not be a great thing the the rear wheels i know they had they would they yeah, they're powered run the yeah. diff because yeah. they're powered but it, it it's the, the it's not any different problem to have uh to solve you just have one extra axle chunkly bumps in the that's a great name by the way in the uh, live chat room uh reminding me that actually uh various other 
teams tried their own version of a six-wheel car, including Ferrari and, and Williams. But that was with four rear wheels, four driven rear wheels, rather than two at the front, uh, four at the front. All right. Well, it's not caught on. They banned it. And I think this is what happens really in a completely open formula is that someone comes up with an innovation and it's either so good that everyone copies it or it's so good that it gets banned, isn't it? So, Well, yeah. How, do you, how is it different from, say, the invention of the front wing or the turbo? Mm. You know, it's, it's either something that's going to revolutionize the automotive industry, which is what Formula One was in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and to an extent the 80s um, as well. And um, over the years, that kind of influence has been on a, I don't want to say smaller scale, but it's been less visible, you know, and a, a lot less in your face. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's basically what it was. Uh, yeah, just the chat room, John, I'm telling us, since the wheels aren't driven, no diff is needed. They'll they'll yeah. rotate the yeah. speed they need to to get around the corner. It's one of those things that, that came out of my mouth. And as I was saying it, I came, <laughs> came up with a solution. I was like, oh, uh, thank you very much, chat room. Uh, you're always saving us there. And um, Marky made a comment about the noise. The noise was the engine emitting exhaust while the throttle was off. The cold blown diffuser literally uses the cylinder as a pump. Not as effective, uh, but the other way had been had been banned. Well, that was in the same sort of era where they were cutting cylinders in low-speed corners to help with traction and fuel efficiency as well. And oh. Renault were the kings of that, which is part okay. of uh, the reason why Red Bull was so successful in that okay. era. So that's like a V10, and they were like... V8. Back v- V8. So it, was, it was the V8 that would go down to four cylinders. So they just go, yeah. right, just cut half the engine off in a slow-speed corner and yeah. then get it get it fired back up again, just using the momentum of the car in gear, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. All right, my my um, my Honda VT two hundred and fifty used to just do that all by itself. There we go. Not by design, though. Well, I'm sure it was down to one cylinder at, at certain points. Okay, that's that's really fascinating. I think you know this is about the soul of, of Formula One. Uh, Brad Philpot said on a recent Twitter space of mine, he said, "Let's just make it a spec series." He said, "The thing that interests everyone about F one is the drivers, so why not just make it a spec series?" I to me is a something something year. F1 fan, I think I've always enjoyed the the competition, but I think as aero has become more and more important, I think I've enjoyed the tech battles less and less because it's sort of it's invisible, and I I don't know what has happened to Formula One that the aerodynamicist department seemed to have this chokehold almost on Formula One where you couldn't even try one season where you go okay let's take the front and rear wings off, let's see who does the best. You could yeah. never do that because there's such an ingrained aerodynamic philosophy in F1. I mean, I think that's a great idea if you want to just stifle innovation uh, to make it a spec series. Yeah. Uh, frankly, I love the fact that there are a handful of motor racing series and they're all at the pinnacle of their particular discipline Yeah, where you design the whole car. Formula One, and, and even then that's only... Within certain teams. boxes as well. Yeah. Yeah. The the hypercar class in the World Endurance uh, Championship, MotoGP, where the manufacturers make their own bikes, uh, and uh, probably WRC as well. But even then, you're starting off with a road car, so uh, yeah. probably not even, even that. But uh, yeah, I don't like the fact that that's a dying breed, really. Well, it is. And I, but the thing is, because you know, the margins have been so squeezed in Formula One around aerodynamics, they have to kind of, they've basically specced a lot of 
everything else except aerodynamics and and the flaws, which in a lot of ways is is just how everything interacts with aerodynamics. Maybe F1 needs to be harsher with the tools it takes away. We don't need Formula 1 to get any faster. We don't need it to circulate tracks at a lower lap time. To an extent with these regulations, they took away some of their aero tools. But I just I find it politically interesting that they I don't think F1 as a body could say, you're not allowed front wings anymore, or here's, yeah. here's a spec front wing, crack on, do everything else. I think the, the teams and the sport would never allow that. Well, I'll tell you what as well. Let me take this opportunity to disprove the biggest misconception with, say, spec series in general, which is that they're cheaper, which is just not true. Because as soon as you make it a spec series, that one supplier gets to say, oh, this costs X amount now. Whereas before, so take Formula 2, for example, back in the Formula 3000 days in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, they would the teams would be sort of bargaining deals with certain manufacturers and suppliers for chassis and tires and engines and things like this. And it was a very well-run thing, and the cost was under control. As soon as it went to being a spec series, suddenly they're all paying more money for the same thing. You're listening to Missed Apex Podcast. It's a Patreon-supported show. I'd go and check out the Patreon perks by going to patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. The general idea is that it's a micropayment, uh, which all in all, combined with a, a bunch of different people, makes it a, a big enough thing to mean that me and Matt and Chris now actually can do some work for Missed Apex Podcast, and it can be part of our freelance calendar without our patrons this would not have survived. Other pressures would have come in and swamped us. Instead, we've been able to grow and thrive and become the world's highest ranked, host-owned, independent Formula One podcast. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that stat, uh, but if you look at the iTunes ratings, I think it is is pretty clear. Every F1 show above us has big funding behind them. So uh, if you want to be part of keeping us up there with the big boys, check out patreon.com forward slash Missed Apex. All right, Matt, have you had a little delve into our listener mailbag? I have indeed, although this particular question comes to us from the Twitters and and is from our friend Luke Loduke. And he asks, what miles per gallon does this generation Uh. of Formula One cars achieve? Yeah. And so uh, without getting into the cost of filling things up, because that appears to change <laughs> on a daily basis, I have a brief and entertaining overview. Brilliant. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is this kind of stuff is relevant because whether we like it or not, Formula One feels or it's, it appears to feel a pressure to to be road relevant, uh, to talk yeah. about, you know, to, to lead technologies in the automotive industry and while some of us could kind of go well what's that got to do with just 20 cars racing around you know in a circle i I can't see the pinnacle of motorsport ever really existing in a bubble like that without engaging with the broader automotive world yeah and and this really gets to the heart of the 2014 regulations where we added the mguh and the mguk um so looking back once upon a time Formula One was Story a time. wild <laughs> west of regulations, yeah. and they measured their fuel in the liters, which I think is probably what you do over there now. We use gallons over here, but mm. it's the same thing. It's a volume measurement. And in 86, 
you were allowed a, a maximum fuel load of 195 liters, which was dropped to 155 liters in 88. And it stayed more or less there until I think the late 90s when they switched to measuring by weight. Because as it turns out, if you play games with the temperatures and the pressures, that that you can get more fuel into the same volume if you try hard. And this is something Formula One teams remarkably discovered on their own. So it was set at 140 kilograms until the 2014 regulations where it got changed to 100 kilograms. And think about the increase in efficiency because the length of the Grand Prix did not change. And suddenly we're 40 kilograms less to achieve the same distance at the same speed. Okay, there's not going to be a test on those figures, is there? Because... Like what? What's the what's the gist of this? Is that it's got better, presumably, yeah, massively better. I mean, you know, I, imagine if suddenly it's more than forty percent. It's like thirty, thirty something, thirty five, thirty six percent improvement in fuel efficiency. And uh, since all internal combustion engines are indeed thermal engines, we're seeing over fifty percent efficiency versus in the low thirties for a standard internal combustion engine only. But to answer the actual question, (laughs) in the least amount of time I've ever taken to get to it, (laughs) if we assume a 100 kilogram fuel load and a 306 kilometer race, you're talking about 3.06 kilometers per kilogram, which works out to be about 7.5 miles per gallon if you assume a kilogram and a liter are the same, which they are at certain temperatures and pressures. Just going to say it. Yes, you can tweet me exactly how wrong I am at, at temperature X and pressure Y. But Matt just PT going for 55. I just need to be very clear. It's at Matt PT 55, no other yeah. handle. Okay. Yeah, you you just go right ahead and hit up at Spanners Ready on Twitter and tell no! them how wrong I was. <laughs> Chris. <laughs> um, if we're at 95 kilograms, that goes up to 3.22. And they've increased the fuel because the weight has gone up. We're up to 115, but teams rarely run that amount of fuel. So even if we assume they're close to that at 110 kilograms, that's 2.78 uh, per liter or 6.95 miles per gallon. So your answer is roughly yeah between seven, eight miles per gallon. If okay. my guess is as to the average amount of fuel being used is correct. And I know Chris is going to say, oh, no, they use way less. They use way no. We don't. Yeah, but I had to make some sorry, assumptions. Sorry, who asked the, the question? question? Who asked the question? That, again, would be our friend Luke, Luke Loduke on Twitter. Not, not my friend, Luke. You and me, we've fallen out. Chris? So it sounds like a horrendous number, doesn't it? Seven and a half miles to the gallon. And uh, it goes back to what we were talking about, the tyres, right? They do 10 kilometres before they're past their best. How on earth is that road relevant? And you've got to remember, we are talking about the absolute pinnacle of what a, a, a car can do and the utterly extreme pressures that the power units, that the tires, that everything is under, which in your road car is 0.1% of what a Formula One car can do. That is why motor racing is the best test bed for new innovations and technologies. And so when we say that we can do seven and a half miles per gallon in a Formula One car, that might equivalent to 80 in a normal road car. Equivalent, eh? Why Why is fuel efficiency important? Like you said, the tyres last a handful of miles. An engine 
lasts what what is it what is a formula one race 200 miles times eight 305 ish kilometers whatever that is in miles okay i know i'm a fan of the metric system but i just don't i just don't know kilometers no i don't know either but i never learn what it is in miles because it's always been measured in kilometers okay so so it's meant it lasts like 250 kilometers and and then your engine blows up and is no good why are we thriving for fuel efficiency in motorsport why is everything else allowed to wear out way quicker than it would on your road car but we have to somehow be fuel efficient wait hang on i'm not i'm not sure i agree with that because right. the engines have to last longer and longer and longer yeah eight, ra- ever eight, had to, ra- eight races eight engines per season now we have three eight races 200 how long does your road car last it lasts like 200 so that's the same thing. That's what we would it's what we were just talking about, so, the extreme so, pressures of it. So, and when you apply that to a road car, mm. it is incredibly long-lived. Mm, Matt? Yeah, well, I just, um, in order to make the point I'd like to make about this, I just want to say, imagine you um, had to put 140 liters of fuel into your car to get where you're going. And then you get a new car, and now you only need 100 liters to get to the same place. That's the kind of improvement we're talking about. Yeah, in absolute terms, it doesn't seem great, but you have to understand that these yeah. engines are being run at RPMs your car engine won't even do for 90 minutes straight without stopping, and your car never, ever, ever does that. And, and that's the point. If we rode our, our road cars, if we could somehow make them go and do an F1 lap time, they wouldn't be as efficient as the Formula One hybrid engines. And they would not last either. They would go boom very quickly. Fair enough. And think about that money you'd be saving as well. Was what's that? Eighty quid for forty liters? Don't mate. It's too much. It's way too no, much. I know. Okay. So Matt, very interesting. Is there any more points on this fuel efficiency question? No, just appreciate this engine while we have it. Okay, that's what I would say. Okay, so okay, I like. I'm sure that like the subject matter is interesting and important and relevant. I'm just going to say that might not be the the least dry segment on the show we've ever had. That's all. There was a lot of numbers. I, I might not necessarily want to repeat that maths fest. And to anyone out there who's confused and angry, just remember it's all it's all Matt's fault. So I'm going yes. to go. I'm going to go to some juicy driver gossip now. More than anything, it made me sleepy, not because I was bored. It was just that I was having to use too much brain power to keep up. Okay, so this question is from Jesse. And this is a really interesting question for for older F1 fans who, who take a lot of stuff for granted. But we do have to remember there's a lot of newer fans here who are finding F1 and the personalities involved in their current in their current state. So Jesse says, new F1 fan here. I'm getting to the stage of life where I always root for the wily old veteran, which means, of course, Fernando Alonso is one of my favourite drivers to watch. He's shaking his fist at the whippersnapper Sonoda in the middle of an overtake. I don't think that was his fist, unless his fist is very, very narrow. Or calmly explaining over the radio, yeah, no problem, I want Norris close to me so that I can kill his tyres. This is quality material, posits Jesse. But I've picked up on more than a hint of exasperation and eye-rolling every time his name comes up on the podcast. What gives? What did he do at Ferrari and McLaren to sully his name? And obviously, to to those of us who've been watching a while, um, I have a bit of sympathy for that because there is very much an Uncle Fernando vibe 
you know, the, he's just, he's a, the crazy F1 uncle. He's still fine. He's still fast. He's throwing out his opinions. He can say whatever he wants, just like he's some lovable old rogue. But Fernando Alonso, who I am a fan of as well, by the way, Jesse, especially these days. So it's not lost on us. But he was he was the baddie, Chris. He properly was, wasn't he? Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Yeah, so I will also second that. I am a huge Fernando Alonso fan and is no doubt one of the most talented drivers ever to grace the sport. And I think it's criminal that he only has two world championships to his name because I think it's something like eight points more in his career would give him another four titles or something ridiculous like this. I don't think it's criminal like he's been robbed because I do feel like Fernando Alonso has has made enough bad decisions and done enough wrong wrong things that if he was a five-time world champion, I would be sitting here going, do you know what? He deserves to only have two the git. And this is from someone who's who's professing to be a fan. Well, I like the fact that they are a new enough fan that they left Reno entirely out of this conversation. Oh my goodness! Yes, that's true. Well, anyway, Chris, do you want to give us a potted history? Well, well uh, what it comes down to is that he is known for being a disruptor within yeah. the team he works for, and uh, looking at the 2007 McLaren case where he sparked issues. Explain with all of Hamilton. that right now. Remind me. Okay, well, the most famous, the sort of flashpoint was the Hungary qualifying. So back in the days of refueling, you would refuel in the middle of the qualifying session in the pit lane. Uh, he was in front of Lewis Hamilton, the box getting refueled, ready to go out for his last run. <laughs> and he, the lollipop goes, back in the days of the lollipop man, oh, remember yeah, that lollipop the traffic man. light I, system? I do um, remember. So lollipop man says, go, go, go. And he just sits there. He just sits there, runs the clock until Lewis doesn't have enough time to set a qualifying <laughs> A final running qualifying that and bags himself. Outrageous. That, your teammate. Your yeah. teammate. He has caused just too many issues with the teams that he's been driving for. And he, he did it at McLaren. He did it at Renault. He did it at Ferrari. He did it at McLaren again uh, when they were with Honda from oh, 2015. Yeah. Mm. And I wouldn't be surprised if he's kind of doing it at Alpine now. 
Well, I, I, it's hard to say what's going on at Alpine right now. There's a surface calm. Yeah, it feels <laughs> yeah synergistic. But I, 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 I see the potential could be there. Um, am I wrong in taking his first stint in McLaren? Did he not also turn them in for having illegal Ferrari plans? Okay. Oh God, yay! Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't know if we have to say allegedly anymore or whatever. But the the idea was that he'd come from Renault. Yes. To McLaren, and that he'd been sent illegal documents, which he had then could, could potentially have shared. I think that they were sent to an engineer at McLaren, but he knew about it and informed the FIA when it was clear that uh, McLaren weren't going to hobble Lewis oh. in their fight, or at least that's how the story goes that I know casually. I wasn't following. Oh, the so he that was so he was willing to to put mclaren in the poop uh, you know rather than but but then again mclaren were the ones that were doing something bad alonso was just like yeah. so so hang on are, are you saying that you're you know you're in the uh snitches get stitches mentality and that's why we're blaming alonso surely we could say alonso is not a snit he's a whistleblower a hero in many ways chris well it's worth remembering as well that the whole sort of spygate scandal was what um ended mclaren's works relationship with mercedes as an engine supplier and what well it was part of the reason anyway yeah, okay. um it, it was one of many many factors of things really imploding at mclaren is why they haven't won a world championship since 2008 but um the uh that's eventually what led to mercedes <laughs> having their own team in, in Formula okay. One and rather than just being with so, McLaren. So, so Maria has said what I was uh, trying to spit out as well, but he, they said, wasn't it the Ferrari's papers? And that was in my head as well. And then when I went, oh, hang on a minute. He came from, from Renault. So it was McLaren had somehow got hold of Ferrari blueprints or whatever. Right. But there was no proof they ever used them. Yes, that's correct. Just like there was no proof there was ever traction control at Benetton and blah, blah, And blah, Red Bull blah, 2013. Blah. Yes, exactly. No, um, no, no, no lawyers, no. That was following Matt saying there was no proof of those things. And then I added correct. another thing there was also no proof of. Or that Mercedes benefited from their secret tyre test in 2013. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I think they admitted as much, but they just argued that it was technically quasi-legal, sort of based on some emails that got sent once upon a time. No, no, it was no benefit at all. They didn't magically start winning races after that. Um, Sorry, I feel like well, I distracted you from your point. I was going to make a different point. But no, they, they, they when the current next generation of tyres came out, they were much, suddenly their rear tyres stopped melting. Because they were fantastically quick and qualifying, weren't they? Yeah. They would lock out the front row and then be 16th after yeah. five laps. Yeah, they'd be, they'd be very quick for yeah. about three laps and their tires would melt and that would be the end of their race. Um, yeah. And it's always interesting to look at Lotus performance in light of the fact that Lotus gave Pirelli their only test bed in Formula One for some years. Mm. And then magically, they always did really well with their tires. I mean, there's a certain amount of tire development. And if you've given them your car, well, <laughs> you're going to kind of benefit from that. Anyway, so Alonso, though, in 2005, 2006, he yes. was, to me, the guy that was coming in and saving us from Michael Schumacher. So at least on that level, it was a breath of fresh air. Formula One's got this bright young new champion. Yeah, and he had that, like that amazing pass around the outside of 130. Was it the outside of 130 or at Suzuka? And he just absolutely took it to Schumacher. And it was amazing. 
Yeah. Right up until the time they started crashing cars for him to win races. <laughs> and people who, oh, I suppose, who are new to Formula One as well, uh, Michael Schumacher at that time, that early 2000s period, if you think Mercedes and Hamilton were dominant, like Schumacher, that it was a different, it was a different level. They were an absolute mm. machine. And, and Schumacher was never challenged at all by, by a teammate. And in fact, probably would have been eight for not that, that leg break. I can't remember what year that was. Was it oh, 2099? Uh, was it 99? Was it? Yeah. So he broke his yeah. leg. Irvine came in and, and should have won the, the title. But, but, yeah. but, but Irvine is no Schumacher. Yeah. But there's, there's also controversy around that, that Ferrari didn't want someone other than their champion to, <laughs> to win, to win that championship. But anyway, yeah. yeah so Schumacher was all powerful, all dominant. And it, and there was no doubt at the time either that he was a, a dominant force in, in Formula One driver sphere. So, you know, people will say of Lewis Hamilton's championships, oh, he, he always had the best, the best car. Um, other drivers could have done the same. And, and no, and I think, you know, I think it's fair to say Lewis Hamilton, A, has aided in development of cars. Uh, a, a, B, was also a phenomenon. Uh, but it's also fair to say that Lewis Hamilton had better drivers around him than Michael Schumacher did. Michael Schumacher truly emerged as a brand new force, a brand new type of driver. So that's when, when we say you have to imagine the domination of the Schumacher era, he, he was a truly different type of driver. Me, for me, Schumacher's arrival in uh, 92 marked the era where the professional racing driver yes. was kind of born. I think even up until the 80 it was becoming more pro and there was better preparation for the drivers coming up through the junior formula but 92 when schumacher yeah. came in marked you know the start of something new about what a successful formula one yeah. driver had to be and i think lewis hamilton yes. in some and, ways uh, raised that bar and, and this is it and then the, the generation of drivers that came through had to be at least michael schumacher level yeah. so alonso lewis hamilton Raikkonen, all those guys came through in the shadow of uh, probably those guys watched Michael Schumacher and sh- and saw that's the, f- the level of physical athlete you have to be now to be a Formula One driver. Just to um, touch upon what you said about never being challenged, there were some close battles that he had. Obviously, 2000 was another. No, no, with like, teammates. teammates. With, I specifically yeah. meant teammates. But yeah, no, that's the, it was always yeah. from, it was either from yeah. Mika Hakkinen and McLaren or Kimi Raikkonen and um, McLaren or uh people in uh the montoya it was in the williams in in 03 as well but just to go back to um alonso real quick and um actually maria oh, yeah yeah and that, that's what sorry well. yes you're right you're right here to bring it back to alonso but what i was trying to paint the picture of was how much of a relief alonso oh, yeah. was to come in and go oh it's over thank goodness and and massively like popular as well because yeah um formula one in spain was not a really big thing there was no like big Spanish racing drivers before Fernando Alonso um, came around. And obviously now we have got uh, Carlos Sainz Jr. kind of carrying on that mantle, uh, as it were. But I think the other thing that sours Fernando Alonso a a little bit is the 2008 crash gate. And he will deny to this day that he knew anything about it. I don't think you're going to convince people of that. Quick primer, what happened? So uh, in that race, Renault told Nelson Piquet Jr. to deliberately crash his car in Singapore to bring out a safety car, which brought Fernando Alonso to the lead of the race. And it, when he qualified like 16th or something, like ridiculous. And uh, that that crash helped him with the race. And also lie 
about it afterwards. It wasn't until 12 months later because PK's reward for that was getting another contract with them for the following year. When they suddenly terminated his contract halfway through the season, Ooh. he went and blew the whistle. Ooh. And let's be really clear. They pitted Alonso at a very strange time. Yeah. And he had just come out on fresh tires and like the very next lap was the PK crash. So everybody else came into the pits, which left him basically leading the race. And that was the same race where Fernand, uh, for where when Massa mm. drove off with the fuel line still attached and ruined his chance, I believe, at the championship. Yeah. And it, it's worth reminding people as well, that was in an era where they yes. would close the pit lane exit as well. And you would sort of queue up when the when the safety uh... car was coming around. So kind of stopping under safety car didn't mean the same thing it does now. Oh, so, okay. So that was my question, because if that had happened now and he'd pitted early, then mm. there'd been a safety car. That would be a disaster because everybody else would get a very cheap pit stop. So back yeah. then, and this is something that I had completely lost through through the annals of time, the pit lane would close for a safety car. So you couldn't pit. So No, you, you could, but you would have to queue at the, it was the exit that was closed. Oh so my goodness. So you and could wait pit for the queue and to you come round. And then so you would get automatically put at the back. So you could have Pretty fresh much. tires, but yeah. you'd be behind everyone else that hadn't pitted. Yeah, there was another wow. reason Felipe Massa lost the World Championship that year, and that's because he left the pit lane on a red light in Canada. There were loads yes. of people who got disqualified for that that day. So I can't remember why, but it was caught out a lot of people that day. Yeah, and Andy got robbed by Glock deliberately just moving out of the way for him. Yeah, for, slowing for down for Lewis. Yeah. No, that's obviously a rubbish conspiracy theory. It was a crazy season because Lewis Hamilton also got like a... Didn't he get disqualified or got a massive penalty for, for not yielding? Spa. For Spa. Yeah, basically Raikkonen, he, he was accused of overtaking Raikkonen illegally. So he gave the place back but then immediately retook the place. And yeah. then I, don't, I can't remember what the punishment was, but he, he, he lost. He got dropped to third oh, right, with okay. a so time not, penalty not rather than winning the race, which seems mm. ridiculous because Raikkonen crashed out like the following lap as but, well. But in all this nostalgia, again, Fernando Alonso isn't really complicit in that. There's no evidence, is there, that Fernando Alonso was involved in that plan to have a driver, a junior driver, well, deliberately crash into the pit lane to cause a safety car. Yeah, no evidence. Well, I mean, I think I, 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 if, if I'm going to play the part of the prosecutor here, I don't think it's whether he was involved in the plot per se. Was it his idea? Did he originate it? I think the bigger question is, was he aware of it? And we certainly have evidence uh, with Spygate later on that he has no problems going to the FIA if he thinks it will benefit him. Yeah. <laughs> and yet he's told the pit, you know, six laps before he normally would and without argument i mean i look at people like carlos signs like what are you telling me on this radio engineer <laughs> no argument that i'm aware of does exactly what they say and winds up leading the race and then says nothing about it until he's asked by the fia once pk jr came forward so i would argue that this is all kind of circumstantial a little bit if we're trying to sully alonzo's character and say why do people dislike him he didn't have a dominating period like schumacher like lewis hamilton it was a it was a blip in f1 history it was two championships with renault we don't know he had anything to do with crashgate we don't he wasn't the perpetrator of of spygate we could say that he was a whistleblower so why the hate chris yeah i mean look i look, i'm not trying to sully you know, his reputation this is just a, a number of reasons why 
some teams are quite reluctant to take on yeah. uh, Fernando Alonso. Actually, if, I think if rumors are true, Mercedes is one of them. And the point I would make is that these all come from young Fernando. Ah, like, yeah. like, like, you know, he might have known he said nothing. That's kind of a blot in your character. But uh, there are certain other drivers in certain situations who have not necessarily said things when well, maybe they could have. We have to remember Lewis Hamilton was instructed, allegedly. Yep. I think he got he got he got a penalty for this. So I don't think this yeah. is allegedly his team told him to lie about the reasons why he did an unsafe rejoin. And he yes. went he went along with it. And I think has yep. since gone. Oh, I shouldn't have done that. But and, you can understand the pressure the drivers are under. And so I want to make the point that as much as we're looking at, for the benefit of this question, Alonzo's quote-unquote past sins, that doesn't mean that he would do that today or that he's entirely like that today. So you're saying there's a redemption arc. Please, please let there be redemption arcs in life. Let those be real. So do we think that Lewis Hamilton knew anything about the fact that really McLaren weren't allowed to win the 2007 World Championship because that's of Spygate? A, that's alleged. That's a huge alleged. Come on. Come on. There is no way they were ever going to let McLaren win that World Championship. <laughs> Massive allegedly. Massive allegedly there. But um, so I think I think just to summarize, I, I don't think this will lead to, to much further discussion. But Fernando Alonso, as you said, a, a disruptor. Um, Lots of reports out of that 2007 McLaren series that season with Hamilton that it became very much a divided grid. Do you necessarily want that? One comment that came, comes to mind, and it, it, it will live with me because this is a, a, such a classic Alonso quote. It was at Spa, a track that is renowned for... Oh, no, it wasn't. It was Monza. It was Monza, a track that is renowned for, you know, there's not a lot of places where you can really kind of make a difference compared to your teammate say a lot of other tracks you might have a, a big gap but there are tracks like barcelona like spa like monza where maybe teammates are more likely to be together and on the grid he looked at qualifying and he just threw Raikkonen under, under the bus in a, an interview he said look at the other uh, other cars you know teammates 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 i'm here look at Raikkonen. he's all the way down the back and even though he clearly would have been getting preferential treatment from Ferrari at that time. He was still happy to throw Raikkonen under the bus by saying, look how good I am. I'm the only person who was able to qualify much higher than his teammate. I don't know if they then went and had an espresso together after the race, but if I was Raikkonen, I certainly wouldn't. And, you know, Raikkonen was used as a... I mean, sometimes I feel like they, you know, they forgot about Raikkonen in those, in those races, but he was often used to just, like, you know, stay out on old tyres, never pit, and just see who you can hold up behind behind Alonso. Um, we know he was disruptive in his partnership with Honda, as Chris said as well. So I think it's that disruptive nature that has, quote unquote, sullied his name, according to Jesse. So anyway, Jesse, I know it's a relatively innocuous question, but I think it's lovely actually to have this um, this view oh, back and, and go and go innocuous. Do, do, from his point of view innocuous litigious from our point of view um but i think i think you're right matt we have to reassess what we think because we've got a lot of baggage as f1 fans for, yeah. from from the before times as we find him now i still find myself a, an alonso fan and you go well okay is there a redemption arc because you know he's a crusty old man like me he's seen things he remembers the before time you know, I, I don't know. I, I hope. I hope there's a redem redemption arc for people. Otherwise, uh, I should hang up my mic. Okay. Um, 
not as much time for these two subjects as I wanted to have, but we'll finish on the science question from Matt. First, Chris, a little bit of breaking news. The Red Bull Porsche something something. Yes, so the long-rumoured collaboration between Red Bull and Porsche is set to be announced next week. There's been some uh, documents that have been unveiled, uh, basically because everything is being g- going through the European Union. About 20 different countries have to sign off on this collaboration, and uh, all the boxes have been ticked now, and that means we've got some some documents we can actually you know, publicly look at. And what it seems to be, is a 10-year partnership between Red Bull and Porsche, where Porsche will buy a 50% stake in both the Grand Prix team and Red Bull Technologies, which is what's responsible for the uh, the power unit in Formula One. And uh, that is incredibly exciting to finally have this done. And what's been delayed, because I know it was rumoured to be announced at the Austrian Grand Prix, Red Bull's home race, um, was that the 2026 regulations, the engine regulations, it was a stipulation on Porsche's side that those regulations had to be nailed down before this was announced. And do you know what? For me, this means in, from 2026, I have to be a Red Bull fan because I love Porsche. Anyone who's seen me tweet about GT or endurance racing knows that I am a Porsche fanatic. Had nothing to do with who I've previously worked with, I swear. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I've got a, I've got another team to root for. Wonderful. Yeah. And and how is that going to look when Honda up and wanders off with all of its IP? I mean, you know, it, it, and are we even sure Porsche will really, really, really show up? Because how many times have we been promised Audi or VW or Porsche will be a Formula One team only for that not to really happen? Well, didn't Red Bull buy the Honda IP, though? So therefore, it will sort of get transferred to Porsche. I don't know the answer to that question. I'm pretty sure they did, because that's why Red Bull powered. What's it called? Red Bull powered trains. Yeah, RBBT is is what um, sort of develops the the powertrain. Now, I put develops in sort of quote marks because they put an engine freeze in. Yeah, well, I mean, but are they not still building the engine in Japan? And are we not hearing rumors that Honda might stick around as a power unit supplier? Well, yeah, um, yeah. I'm sure that's legally a bit messy. I, I would have to go back and double check who currently owns the IP for the power unit that Red Bull has in the back of its car yeah. at the moment. What interests me is, are they are they going to be building this engine or are they going to be designing this engine? In other words, is it, are they simply the Tag Heuer no. in this? No, no, no. I don't. I think Tag Heuer was just a way to avoid it being called a Renault, and uh, was a was a bit of money. This is you know full on buying half of the Red Bull's Grand Prix operations, whether it's designing or building or both, or you know how mu- how much the collaboration is going to be. I'm sure those details will come at a later date. Yeah, and and how sure are we that this is really going to happen? Well, they say it's going to be announced next week. So, who, who says the... who says it's going to be announced next? Week? Oh, sorry, Dang. this was. I sorry, I should have absolutely started this at the beginning. This is all on motorsport.com. And who's their source? And who wrote it? Well, their their source is based on the documents that I was talking about that came out uh... of uh, Morocco, I believe <laughs> it was, because of this this whole European Union twenty countries having to sign off on it. No, only fifty two percent of the countries have to sign off it, and then you can do whatever you want, no matter what the consequences are. I don't, I don't really understand the process, to be honest. 
Okay, it was a slight reference you might not have uh, picked up. Oh, I'm, I, very, I I'm very, very subtle. So is this technically still rumour? Um, I mean, technically, <laughs> yes, until it gets formally announced, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that this is happening. Okay. okay, and how will it affect the operations of the team would be the next question, because 50%, what is that? That's a really odd number. 50%. All right, cool. Who makes the call? Do we still have to listen to interviews from bonkers elements of the Red Bull management saying wildly, inappropriately, culturally insensitive things about why their drivers might have performed poorly on a given Grand Prix? Well, although so, I will well, say if it was tequila, that would explain. The, well, the, the, the how lack of Marco is not yeah. going anywhere. OK, but, uh, but I think it, you you'll start to see Porsche's involvement in Formula One. Uh, from 2026 where they'll have you know Porsche engineers in the garage probably as you know representatives they'll talk to the media from the power unit point of view and uh, maybe even in the same way that um, you know Honda had junior drivers coming up through the the single seater ranks that were basically Red Bull drivers we might start seeing Porsche juniors oh you flip-flopped between Porsche and Porsche Pick a lane. You said Porsche all the way through the start of it, and now you've flipped a Porsche. I'm not having it. I mean, well, look, Honda had junior drivers. Maybe it will be Porsche now. No, Matt knows what I mean. I know exactly what you mean, because ich spreche ein bisschen Deutsch vielleicht. Entschuldigung bitte. Wo ist das neben Krankenhausen? Ich habe Dirkfall. I also speak some German. Mein Deutsch ist nicht sehr gut. The last question I have, and I think the most interesting thing is, is it's one thing to say you're buying 50% of something, but it's another thing to have operational control. It's, I can very yes. easily see a structure where Porsche invest, take part of the profits, but that the people who still run Red Bull still run Red Bull. They just yeah. pay less for it now. And if they didn't, let's say Red Bull were capitulating, saying, well, this is effectively our exit strategy from Formula One, and we're handing over to Porsche chris then no you can't change back yeah, you just went you just went team porsche I, Look, I, I can have either right roll the tape steve okay so that would represent another works team in formula one and to me that's another nail in the hope that we might not have franchise f1 coffin i'm not excited about porsche entering formula one now i know that a lot of people who are into sports cars and 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 followed porsche's uh, other racing exploits they might be excited about that but as an f1 fan to me it is just another automotive manufacturer entering f1 as a sport tell me why i'm tell me why i'm wrong chris i don't want it just to be volkswagen porsche mercedes ferrari well it it won't be there will still be customer teams on the grid and this is which ones wait we've got alfa romeo what so we've got who we've got left Oh, Alfa Romeo is not a manufacturer. It's Sauber with a badge on it. And it's the same. It was the same with Caterham, with Lotus, with um, all the other all the other ones as well. There are so many teams that have got Aston Martin. Aston Martin is barely linked to the the road car program. How dare you? That is a legitimate enterprise that just happens to have picked Lance yeah. Stroll as its lead driver. Look, there will still be customer teams. You'll still see Formula One as we you know know and, and love it. This is just one more manufacturer. And actually, really, it, it's only going to be with two teams, isn't it? Because it's only going to be Red Bull and AlphaTauri. I doubt we'll see anyone else getting uh, getting Porsche engines out of this. And you know, if Honda don't stick around, which is still a you know 
a possibility, then we haven't really lost anything overall in terms of the number of manufacturers. So I don't think it's going to change all that much. I think we've got time for another Matt story time, haven't we? Because Matt has picked out a question from our listener mailbag. Feedback at mistapex.net. Now, Matt, this is another... I feel like it's going to be another information and number-heavy yeah. question. I feel bad. Like, like I sh- you should be playing, like, the Brahms lullaby here. Do you know what? Because I knew you were assessing this, and I knew there was a lot of information, I poured myself an extra stiff drink. I've got the bumper ready. And I'm Good. just going to say, everyone, gather round the tree... And it's time for Uncle Trumpets to tell us a story. Off you go, sir. Yes. Well, our friend Matt Miller writes in and wants to know about uh, Ferrari's strategy with sign. And happily, I was already looking into that thanks to a Twitter exchange yesterday. And specifically, he wants to know, what if Ferrari didn't pit him yeah. under the safety car? What if they ran him up the front? on the hards and and ran out that scent yes they would have paid a full pit stop penalty Mm. but there wouldn't be a five second penalty one assumes associated with it and had it gone well could he have done better than he did any safety car now fans of any team or driver will be screaming for their team or driver to pit to take this free pit stop that's been lauded why don't we see teams just go okay just especially early in the race just get your track position, hold up some teams, and and stick to your initial strategy because you save ten seconds, but you give up your whole strategy. Yeah, well, and and the problem with uh, signs in this strategy is the timing of it. That safety car was just too early, potentially to get to the end. And I know people will say Gasly got to the end. Well, Gasly was running like one thirty nines. Yeah, behind, Carlos behind is running one thirty sixes, one thirty fives, and one thirty sevens, and that has a different effect on one's tires. I'm just going to say that. So I have not only looked at and understood what happened with the miscommunication amongst Ferrari, and I can talk about that, but I've looked at the three possible scenarios. Scenario one, everybody's favorite scenario, which is bitter end. You run those mediums to the end, and we're all sat there on our couches with the beers going, get her done, Carlos. And to the end, he goes in third place, which I think was achievable. But the problem you have there is the five-second penalty. Hamilton was nine seconds behind the leader. Russell was 16 seconds behind the leader. He would have had to have basically caught Hamilton and lost zero time on those tires at the end of the race and under the virtual safety car, his margin of error there would have been less than a second. At which point I'll remind you what they did do was they did pit him, catch him up, get him past Alonzo and got him fast lap point, which got him the same points as Perez in P4. So he got a net fourth position and being the only Ferrari on track, can you really blame them for not wanting to risk his tire blowing up or him spinning off the track and then getting another 11 points lost to Mercedes after Leclerc is already gone? Chris? I also don't think this just get track position thing works in the, the, the new regulations because we've seen it's easier to race, it's easier to follow, and the tire wear in particular seems to have gone up, maybe as a consequence, but fact remains it it seems to be higher than it was before so i don't think you can just get the track position and then defend to the hills 
and uh, you know just just block everyone that tries to come through you know like a monaco or or, or something like this i think it's too easy for it to uh, to, to to go the other way now uh, it is but what's interesting about signs is is we know he hadn't been super pushing on his hard tire and we know that everybody else went onto the hard tire so i'm going to say that at 18 lap old hard tires to get to lap 28 when they started racing again on lap 22. I don't see that because 28, uh, Ferrari told us it was a 25 lap limit on their medium tires. That's what uh, um, Inaki said after, after the race. We felt they had a maximum life of 25 laps. Part of that was probably because they didn't have good data from Leclerc because he cl- crashed out too soon. But if we take them at their word, 25 laps, then he just had to get from lap 22 to lap 28, and he would have started directly behind Russell. So I can go to this scenario now, even though I gamed out the other scenario, and I can tell you that if he had pitted on lap 28, he would not have had a five-second penalty because Ferrari would not have unsafely released him in front of Albon, I believe. He would have lost 28 seconds. And he would have had the entirety of the rest of the race to make it back up. And his actual run on the medium tires, once they pitted him the second time, he was making about a second and a half a lap. He caught Alonzo in five laps and went from 40 seconds back to 32 seconds back from lap 43 to lap 53. So numbers, you wouldn't be making that much back up over the whole race. But here's where I think it might have been genius. Because at lap 28, he was only 6.6 seconds behind. And I'm assuming he keeps pace with Russell, who he would have been behind, doesn't try to pass him. He was 6.6 seconds back. If we go and look at lap 42, Russell is um, um, 17 seconds back, meaning he would have gained almost 10 seconds off of his 28 second pit stop. He would have only really had to make up 18 seconds. Uh, everyone, over... keep, everyone keeping up with it. Right. So the pit stop loss, 28 seconds. Okay. Russell goes from six seconds to 17 seconds, six to 16 seconds back. So Russell loses 10 seconds, which means that his net loss, if he's faster than Russell, is only 18 seconds. Okay. And he's got, and, and he's got from lap 28 to the end of the race. To make it up. Now, the downside to this is he would have literally come out at the very, he would have come out behind Schumacher and had to pass everybody, including Perez, who it took him six laps to get round. Yeah. And Russell. All right. Let me try one more time. <laughs> I'm using as a proxy yeah. how far away Russell is from Verstappen. On lap 28, he's six seconds back. And I'm assuming Carlos, had he not pitted, would have stayed with Russell. Not past anyone, not done anything fancy, but he would have been at that same place. At the end of the race, Russell is 16 seconds behind Verstappen, meaning Russell loses 10 seconds. Carlos, coming on new tires, wouldn't lose those 10 seconds. So Russell drives 10 seconds backwards. It's a 28-second pit delta, but mm-hmm. with that 10-second loss by Russell... Now we're only looking at an 18 seconds. He only has to make up 18 seconds from lap 28 to lap 53. But he does have to pass both Perez and Russell to take third place. 
wow, you've really brought this to life for me, Matt. <laughs> I just, I mean, look, strategy's I'm hard. Trying, I'm no, trying, I'm trying. I think this is like, strategy's hard. And Mike Caulfield, the ex former Haas and Mercedes yeah. strategist, did a great segment for us uh, on the magazine show a couple of weeks back. And actually, when that segment was finished, we stayed on the call with him for another 40 minutes. Uh, he showed us some little bits and bobs to show like the de- de- depth and breadth of the information that they have to look at. And and just imagining trying to make those decisions in real time. Yeah. yeah. It's, it is easy for us to say as armchair fans, but right. also, you know, a, a top strategist should be at the same level as a top driver. Like it, it should be that competitive. And I'm sure yeah. it is. Okay, so I will tell you the story now of, of, I don't think Ferrari got it that wrong. And I'll explain what I'm thinking. Up until lap 36. Yeah. Yeah. Carlos was catching. He was making time on everybody. Lap 36, he gets inside DRS on Perez. And if you're going to ding Ferrari, this this is the lap where you say he should have been brought in because he was stuck behind Perez. And he started losing time. In fact, he lost, um, I'm going to look at my numbers right now. He he went from about uh, 10 seconds back yep. to 14 seconds back by the time he passed him. So he loses almost four seconds behind Perez from lap 36 to lap 42. And that would have been and, enough to help him. And that, yeah, okay. those four seconds are almost yeah. the entirety of his penalty right there. Okay, but I do still think Ferrari got it a lot wrong. Right. Well, I mean, I'm saying if you brought him in lap 36... Okay. But there's a reason they didn't is is because Carlos, once he passed Russell, they wanted to try and get him to the end on those tires. But he got stuck behind Perez and Sainz was asking to be brought in because he was stuck behind Perez and knew he was losing time. So Ferrari sat down and they looked at the numbers as strategists do. And they realized as long as we give him enough laps to catch Alonso, we can get him the same points as Perez. Seems like a win. Let's do it. And they had figured this out right before he passed Perez. And so they called him in because the, the audio was off mm. a little bit on the TV. Uh, okay. I, and I'll, once yeah. he was passed, Sainz was like, I want to see out. Let's do another lap. But Ferrari were like, no, we have a much safer and easier way for you to get the same amount of points we think you're going to get because we don't think you'll stay five seconds ahead. Right, so right, right. why don't you come in and get new tires? Matt, I want to thank you for all of that information. From, from, from sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for that information. And uh, I know, I know, I know that there's a cult Matt Trumpets following out there. So, and I'm sure they appreciate it. No, no, that a lot of research into that, a lot of good information. I'm sure. Um, I, I followed all of it, so I now agree. Ferrari did nothing wrong. I, I would agree with you. It, it's almost impossible to put across in words. Yeah, it, it looks much neater on a piece of paper. I mm. promise. But I looked at the numbers from the F1 app, and those are my conclusions. Chris, you still with us? Just about. All right. <laughs> Good. Chris, you got a really, 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 really fun, exciting weekend ahead. How are you preparing? Uh, with 43 pages of notes, and uh, um, uh, watched uh, all of the previous uh, Formula E round in its entirety, like every practice session, all through qualifying mm. Make sure I know how they play out because it's been a while since I've done that yeah. actually. Because um, I, I I used to be a former lead journalist, very invested in it. Uh, then did uh, PR for a team for a little bit, and uh, since then you know, I've not really been involved in it. So uh, yeah, it's good to, good to be back. Commentary man, I've done a little bit. 
I'm not I'm not great. Um <laughs> when you get parachuted into a uh, a series, impossible. When you have the time and the knowledge to do research and to do your homework and watch tapes back, it's a, it's a joy. Um but if you don't do the work, you you will you won't be able to express yourself and we know that you always do the work. In fact, that is your only real talent. <laughs> Hello, that's not an insult your... that's not an insult work <laughs> is your talent this is this is all your fault because that one time at buckmore when we were karting you just handed me a microphone and went talk yeah and uh I, but the second I time i handed you a dossier with all information from the drive yeah, exactly. yeah yeah then we were prepared for after yeah. that once we realized oh he's actually quite good at this so if you are trackside obviously enjoy chris stevens um, commentary and i'm sure you'll do the odd clip and the odd photo uh, go yeah. and follow chris on twitter at Chris on racing. Uh, EJ says, uh, my conclusion from what Matt is saying is that we should conquer Sweden again. EJ is a, a Dane. So you can basically draw your own conclusions from what Matt is saying, which is great. Matt is at MattPT55 on Twitter and uh, and on Instagram is where you find out all your uh, gigs and stuff that you do, which is cool. You seem like you've played in some very lovely locations recently. I have. I, I was very fortunate to go back to Lake George and play in the chapel that was designed by the same architect as Carnegie Hall, no less, from the 1850s. And I'm uh, pleased to say as well, if you look at our social media, increasingly at MissedApexF1 on Twitter, is being more and more slightly you know, managed, nudged, and curated by Chris, who is a professional PR guy. So you might have noticed an up uh, uh, uptick in the Missed Apex a quality and a downtick in the amount of typos and me just going, oi, sod off turnip. So yeah, off. happy to, well, I'm really happy to do it. It's nice. It's uh, it's fun, creative, and yeah, hopefully you guys are enjoying the content. And you can follow me as well, at Spanners Ready. Uh, we've got TikTok com- uh, content increasing and growing. But also, if you want to see just some of like me knocking around in a not F1 way, I am trying to post more on Instagram, so you can follow me, Spanners Ready there. We will be back on Sunday at 8 p.m. for our, our Hungarian Grand Prix race review. But wherever we see you next, work hard, be kind, and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.